The reading this morning is from the Old Testament, 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 16 through 46. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the veils. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, and I will put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, till their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, and say, come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sails of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars of water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. The seventh time the servant reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, and the wind rose. A heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his robe, his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This is God's word. Thanks for reading. Uh, good morning, good morning. If we've not met, uh, my name's Matt. Matt, it would be lovely to do so afterwards. Uh, but we're turning again to this uh, memorable, intriguing uh, story in the middle of 1 Kings. So uh, let me lead us in prayer as we begin together. Father, again, we say here is, a, here is an account from history that is strange to our ears. It seems so different, so bizarre and brutal. Help us, help us understand rightly why you've recorded it for us, what we're to learn, so that we worship you rightly as the true and living God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a little while ago, I was a bit fed up on, um, I was being held on a call for uh, whatever it was, and uh, you, know, you, you got the tinny naff music uh, tinkling away, and I was a little bit bored, so I googled. Uh, worst call centers in the UK while uh, being a little bit bored. And uh, do you know what they are? Would you like to know? Just uh, for your depressing realism, when if you're stuck in one of these. The, this is according to which magazine? You know, the consumer magazine. The worst people to call in the UK, ironically, are BT. <laughs> Second, a talk talk. Uh, but uh, how extraordinary that two communication companies have the worst call centers uh, in the world. I call it customer frustration. Uh, best of car insurance, apparently, bizarrely. Um, but there's a certain, there is a certain irony to that. But most of the time, most of the time, when you're being held and you look at down at your phone and it says you've been on this call for 15 minutes and it's just hold and hold and hold, most of the time you're getting on with something else and you know that someone will get pick up your call eventually unless you're one of those really bad companies that just hang up after a certain time. Uh, but most of the time, you're going to get some sort of response. Depressing it may be, and inefficient it may be, but you'll get there most of the time. And much worse is trying to get a hold, in this passage, of Baal. Trying to get a hold of Baal is a great frustration. <laughs> and these guys tried all day quite demonstrably, to get hold of Baal. And yet there's no response. In one sense, the, of what was read, the, the sort of 
dominant verse in one sense is verse 29 of chapter 18. They tried and they tried, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Much like BT, but a little bit worse. No one after a day. That is not a God you want to follow. If you're joining us today, we're looking at the uh, the Elijah cycle, I guess the, the account of Elijah in 1 Kings uh, at the moment. We're calling it a tale of two thrones. Why so? Because the people are being told they've got to choose. Uh, so we looked at this last time in the first half of the chapter. Verse 21, uh, I guess, is, is the main application of the whole uh, passage or the whole section in the Bible, really, of verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. That's the choice. And for them, that wasn't an obvious choice. Looking back, of course, it seems a bit daft. But for them, because Baal was the state religion, culturally, it's just kind of what you did. Yeah, Yahweh was there lurking in the background. There's a bit of a historical remembrance. Didn't we? Our fathers used to follow the God, the Lord, Yahweh, but Baal is the dominant figure, and the country's done well for 20 years. The economy has grown at 7% a year, varying up to 12%. I'm making those numbers up. But the economy has done very well, and, and it's secure. There's been no invasions for the last 20 years. All is well while Baal has been the state religion. So why rock the boat? He's a good God to follow. He seems to be doing the business. And okay, we know we probably ought to follow the law, but Baal functionally day by day, seems to put money in the bank account and bread on the table. So that's who we follow. But after a period of time, God has had enough. The Lord has had enough. And so he says through his prophet, choose. Verse 21, choose. And then this test is set up, I guess. Verse 24, two altars. And verse 24, you call upon the name of your God, Baal. I, Elijah, will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, in one sense, this is just a a, a very obvious demonstration that's being put on by Elijah to prove his point. Uh, In one sense, the bigger issue going on, there's a drought. So if you've been with us, we've been following through this. Chapter 17, verse 1, we looked at this. Uh, Elijah appears and says, no rain. It's just not going to rain in this country. There's going to be a drought and all the crops are going to fail and the animals are going to die because there's nothing for them to eat. And for three years, this has been going on until chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord says, okay, Elijah, enough. It's time for rain to fall. But before the rain falls, which it will do at the end of chapter 17, just so people aren't confused and think, well, uh, Baal has turned on the taps again. Let's have a very obvious demonstration. Let's gather the people and show that I am the Lord and that Baal is not. And that's what's going to take place in our episode today. Now, now two brief comments before we really get to the text. Uh, This is obviously a slightly unusual demonstration of who God is. This is, you'd have to say, a fairly big moment in Bible history, uh, when God is turning the hearts of his people back to him from their lowest point, 
morally, spiritually. And at the significant moments in the Bible, that's when you tend to get a cluster of miracles. So in the Exodus, when God takes his people out of, uh, out of Egypt and into the promised land, it brings them out of Pharaoh, you get a cluster of miracles. Here, with Elijah and his successor Elisha, you get a cluster of miracles. When Jesus comes, you get a, a, another cluster of miracles and the signs and wonders taking place. In the apostles, you do. But really, you'd say it's those four turning points in Bible history that have such demonstrable uh, signs. They're not normal. Elijah, I think, is meant to be seen or presented as a second Moses. Moses confronted the king, Pharaoh, and Ahab does, the, excuse me, and uh, Elijah does the same. Immediately they confront and then they run away and they go to a foreign land and spend a bit of time in a foreign land for a few years before they come back. And both of them take on the king's magicians, Pharaoh's or Ahab's here, They take on the king's magicians, they defeat the king's magicians, and then both of them go to Mount Sinai to receive word from the Lord. I think Elijah is meant to be, we're meant to go, this is very much like Moses, yes, because he's doing the same as Moses. It's a significant point in Bible history. That's my first little comment. The second is, the following of Baal really was horrible. So he's their false god, he's an idol, we'll talk, we may have them today, but it isn't the same. Baal was a despicable god to follow. You get some indication of it just in, at the end of chapter 16. God, Baal was a god who required child sacrifice. So if you're going to build a city, what do you do? You sacrifice children. That's why you get at the end of chapter 16, uh, verse 34, in Ahab's time, he of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abraham. It's not that Abraham was working on the wall. It's a sacrifice. He set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. It's a sacrifice. That's what you do if you follow Baal and you want to do something significant. You sacrifice your children. That isn't just Bible evidence. You can read all sorts of other documents that will say it. Even hundreds of years later, the Romans would still recall, Roman number of Roman historians still call the worshippers of Baal. They've sacrificed their children. Uh, the biggest archaeological site is in Carthage, where they, uh, in North Africa, where Baal was uh, the dominant god for a period of time. And archaeologists have dug up 20,000 urns containing child-sacrificed bones. This is a horrific, horrific false religion, striking in Carthage. Whenever there is war or famine, the numbers of child sacrifices go up. In periods of peace and prosperity, they go down. Because that's what you did if you followed Baal. You had to persuade him to give you something good, peace, rain. So you offered sacrifices of your children. Now, the reason I give you that as a backdrop is because by the time you get to the end of this account in verse 40, And Elijah has demonstrated that the Lord is God. And verse 40, he says, now the prophets of Baal kill them. That seems to our ears incredibly brutal. But you need to understand, Elijah is saying, justice upon these orchestrators of despicable violence. We want justice. Oh, it's immediate and brutal. Why is there not a trial, Elijah? Okay, it's different times. You'd have the Nuremberg trials in the 20th century, or I guess it would be comparable. But it is justice for those who have orchestrated, overseen, horrific, 
horrific state, sacrificing of children. So we understand. But I guess the, the, the big idea of the chapter is still verse 21. In the middle of the chapter, verse 21, who will you follow? I guess it gets a little bit acuter. It's prayer, isn't it? You get two different types of praying. You get the, uh, the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Who do you call out to? Who are you going to cry out to when you need help? Now, I've never done this before. I did a little, a little research this week. There have been, to my mind, a bizarre number of uh, scientific research projects conducted into does prayer work? Which, to my mind, seems slightly bizarre. How do you assess such a thing? How long? I mean, do you give people a day, pray for something, and has it occurred the day later, a week, a month? I don't know how you assess uh, such things. But anyway, people have spent money on sort of research projects. And uh, I was reading about one on the BBC. It was slightly bizarre, and you get uh, sort of PhD agnostic researchers saying, oh, yes, we think prayer does make a difference. And you think, oh, well, I believe that, obviously, as a believer, as a Christian, but it's slightly odd, all these reports. I don't know how you make that sort of judgment and what sort of time scale. But I thought more realistic were the comments afterwards on the comments page. Sarah Wilson was typical. She put it this way. I don't believe in God, but I believe in the power of prayer. And I often ask my mum, who is a Christian, to light a candle or, mum, will you say one for people I care about who are ill or having a tough time? Now, I think that is a sort of more realistic description of many people in our country. Is there a God? Oh, I don't know. Do you pray? Oh, sometimes. Or ask someone I know to pray. Send one up, will you? Send one up for my exams this week. Send one up for my interview this week, will you? That's sort of, that's more common, isn't it? But who are you praying to? Who do you turn to? Majority of the UK are still prayers in some form or other. Not all. But in times, even in just times of desperation, where do you turn to? What? Where do you cry out to? Or, or what makes you feel safer? Where do you turn? Well, let's look at it this way. Uh, uh, two different things, really. There's, we're going to say, cut it like this. There's no answer from the idols. There's a true answer from the Lord. So draw near. Okay? Those three. Let's look at it in those three ways. There's no answer from the idols. There's a true answer from the Lord. Secondly, so draw near is the implication. Let's turn then, first of all, to the prophets of Baal. There is no answer from the idols, verses 25 to 29, despite all their activity. And there's quite a lot of it. There's no answer from the idols. Okay, Uh, verse 22 then, Elijah lays down the the challenge. And he's not going to help himself here. He gives away all sorts of advantages. So verse, uh, they're going to go to Carmel. Well, that doesn't help. Carmel is what was known as Baal's Mountain. There's no altar to the Lord. You read later on in the chapter, that's been smashed down. It's known as Baal's mountain locally. It's the center of his worship. So Elijah has given away home advantage, as it were, to the crowds. So geographically, he doesn't help himself. Obviously, numerically, he doesn't help himself. There are, verse 22, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Those aren't great odds, 450 to 1. He gives them away. 
Uh, and then they, off they go to it. So he says, well, get two bulls, and you choose which bull you want, whichever one you think is the most combustible of bulls, however that works. Anyway, here's the challenge, verse 24. You call on the name of your God. I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he's God. Other people say, oh, that sounds like a good idea to us. All right, then. So off they go, verse 25 to 29, the prophets of Baal. Verse 26, they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it. Then they call on the name of the Lord, excuse me, they, then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Well, morning is first light till noon. So you're talking about six hours there. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. Got a bit boring, I guess, after six hours of that. That's not the most exciting spectator sport. Makes some of our sports look interesting. I'd watch American football uh, rather than, um, sorry, sorry, uh, rather than, um, I like the highlights, but live. Uh, but for six hours, nothing all that goes on. So they dance around the altar that are made. It always works for me. If my wife isn't listening, I'll dance and uh, always produces some sort of response. But anyway, they'll try anything to, uh, but verse 27, nothing. So Elijah piles him with the sarcasm. Shout louder, he said. He's God. Uh, perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Obviously, make sure the crowd can hear him. But shout louder. He is a God after all. Maybe Mr. Baal's in a business meeting. He's busy. It's euphemistic. Maybe Mr. Baal's on the loo. And if you just, just keep going for a bit longer, he, he'll come out of the cubicle and uh, he'll be back in business. Uh, maybe Mr. Baal's on a business trip. Maybe Mr. Baal's having a little snooze. If you just shout louder, you'll wake up your God. Well, gets a bit frenetic, of course. Verse 28. They shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Increasingly frenetic, desperate. Verse 29, midday passed. They conduct, continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. Oh, we're getting on for 12 hours now. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. There is no answer. Because there is no God, Baal. Now here you get a very grotesque display. It goes on and on and on and they're slashing themselves. But in one sense, it's, it's the heart of religious activity. It's a view that says, if we offer up X to our God, then he will give us Y. If we offer something up, he will give us what we desire. And that is the heart of all sorts of religious thought. All sorts of religious thought. He will give you a variety of examples. Uh, the first is almost just like this. Uh, a few months ago, I'm not entirely sure what it was, uh, but outside, the, you know, the Saudi embassy is on uh, Curzon Street, so it's got a machine gun or two outside it uh, with the police, the Saudi embassy. Uh, it was one Friday afternoon after prayers, there was a Shiite protest. I don't, couldn't quite work out why. It was something to do with some shrine had been desecrated, a Shiite sh- shrine had been, don't say that too quickly, a Shiite shrine had been desecrated. Uh, and so there was some protest, 200 or so, maybe, maybe a few more men. Topless. 
and whipping themselves. So uh, this wasn't my photo, but I've got a photo. Drawing blood. Calling out to Alaf to have justice upon the Saudis for desecrating this shrine. We can get rid of that. But, um, uh, Bella, we don't, don't do that for very long. The, um, so in one sense, it's just this. It's just this going on, you know, a few hundred yards away on Curzon Street. God, we'll offer up our blood. Uh, uh, I mean, it was pretty intimidating to watch this. There was a significant police presence, as you'd imagine. But these, are, you know, these guys were ecstatic, frenzied, mad. You, you just wouldn't want to, I didn't take a photo of them. I, was, I didn't fancy that. But if we offer up our, our sort of vigor, our aggression, surely, God, you will judge these Saudis for what they've done. I guess seemed to be it. So in one sense, you get just the same. There are not many of us who are involved with that. But I guess much milder is the very, very polite religious thinking. A sort of a middle-class religiosity, perhaps. That's the dominant thing in the UK, isn't it? Is there a God? I don't know. But um, I will offer up my, I don't know, my thousand pounds to charity a year. And then if there is a God, he will be happy with me. I will offer up my occasional attendance at church. I will offer up my odd prayers every now and again. And if there is a God, he will be, he will be pleased with me. That's a modern version. I guess it takes place in, in most ways like that. In churches, uh, I guess sometimes you get it a bit like that. A bit like some churches, will, uh, third little thing, will generate enormous emotional hype. You know, the volume goes through the roof uh, and the smoke, it doesn't matter from a smoke machine or incense, it all gets a little bit excitable. And uh, everyone gets, you know, work themselves up into a bit of a lather. And, and if we're sort of slightly at the edge of being in control, then surely God will respond. You get that in some churches. I don't think that's our problem. But what does it look like, perhaps commonly for, for you and for me? If I offer up X, then God will give Y. I don't know. But whenever you think that your activity in church, out of church, whenever you think what you do is persuading a reluctant God to give you something, it's this sort of pagan nonsense. And do you ever find yourself doing that in moments, in seasons, in times of stress? I hope it's not just me, or maybe I hope it is just me, rather. Sometimes you just find yourself, maybe not praying, but thinking very silly deals in your head. In moments of desperation, I have found myself thinking, Lord, I don't know, if our, if our son gets out of hospital, if our son survives, I don't care if I fail all these exams. I don't care if I, if I, if I don't get a degree here. I don't care. I'll, I'll accept failure in this arena as long as he gets out of hospital. That's a silly thing to think. Or, uh, God, I, if our daughter is able to stay, I'll, uh, we'll live our lives radically differently. We will double everything we give. We will work out much harder for you. If only you allow her to stay. Desperate. I mean, silly things to pray. That is nonsense. 
I will offer you X so that you, reluctant God, gives me what I desire, is pagan nonsense. And yet I found myself certainly thinking, if not praying that way. You know what Jesus would tell us in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount? He'd put it this way, when you pray, Matthew 6 verse 7, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not listen to them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, you know what I need. I'm yours, let your will be done. There is, 1 Kings 18, no answer from the idols, despite all their activity, despite everything they're willing to offer up. That's not why God answers prayer. There is no answer from the idols, despite all the activity. But let's look at Elijah by contrast. There is a true answer from the Lord in verses 30 to 39. There's a true answer from the Lord because he cares. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me, literally draw near to me. They came to him, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob. Oh, that's interesting. He's in Israel. Remember that the kingdom's been split. It's 10 in the north and two in the south. But he's saying, no, no, let's, let's symbolically unite all of them. He's got geography against him. He's on Carmel. He's got the numbers against him, 450 to 1. But he's always up for a little bit of a challenge to demonstrate who God is. And so let's pour water all over this altar. Let's turn the wood into a complete soggy mess. Verse 33. Four large jars, fill them with water, pour it on the offering. Verse 34, do it again. Verse 34, do it a third time. So let's turn the altar, this wood, into a sodden mess. There is no way this can catch fire. Let's make sure the odds are stacked against us. And then what does he do? Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward. Again, literally, he drew near, near, excuse me, drew near. Verse 30, he says to the people, draw near. Verse 36, the prophet drew near and prayed. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant who have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. And here's the purpose. Here's what this whole extraordinary encounter is about. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he's God. The Lord, he is God. Quite a different outcome. Do you see the difference? The prophets of Baal, if I offer up X, then God will give us what we desire. No answer. Elijah, Lord, Will you do what you've promised? And he gets his answer straight away. Elijah doesn't offer up anything. He says, Lord, you are the Lord. Do what you do. Answer as you've said you will in your word. And before we push that, you do see there's a certainly a nuance to this, given in verses 41 to 46. 
uh, verse 41, uh, Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink for there's the sound of a heavy rain. Well, God had promised it would rain and here comes the rain. So what does Elijah do? Well, he says, Ahab, quickly eat your picnic, otherwise you're going to get rained on. It's a bit like the UK, you know, you set up a picnic, but you, you know, the rain's going to come. So eat your picnic quickly, uh, Ahab, do that. But um, so Ahab goes, and verse 42 goes off and eats his picnic quickly. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees to pray. So God has told him he's going to rain, it's going to rain, and Elijah prays, Lord, will it rain? Verse 43, go and look towards the sea, he told his servants. He went up and looked, nothing. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, okay. Okay, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. It's a bit bizarre with Elijah, isn't it? Same bloke, same day, same place, one prayer. Lord, fire please. (laughs) And down it comes. Second prayer, will it rain? Nothing. Will it rain? Nothing. Will it rain? Lord, can you make it rain? Can you make it rain? I'm starting to look a bit silly here, Lord. Will you make it rain? Will you make it rain? Seven times. What's the difference? Why first prayer, bang. Second prayer, wait, wait, wait. I don't know. Don't know, really. But sometimes, and I think here, despite the promise that it's going to rain, he makes Elijah wait. Seven times, always in the Bible, is completeness, perfection. Seems to be that God is saying to Elijah, yes, it's going to rain. When I'm ready, in my time, I do things in my time, Elijah. I do things when the time is right. Even when I've promised I'm going to do something, it will happen when I'm ready for it to happen. So we need to factor that in. Even when praying to the true and living God, it is when he wants it to happen. Even things he's promised. So look, who do we pray to? I guess the the, the question of chapter 18 is, Who do you trust? Perhaps what do you trust? There is only one true and living God, most clearly revealed in Jesus Christ. Other idols may make us feel safe or valuable or don't challenge us. Baal, you just sort of run with Baal. It's undemanding unless your child has been called upon, but he's undemanding for most of the population. And you can follow an idol for years and years and years and don't realize it's doing you any harm. But in a moment of crisis, who are you going to call upon? And here in 1 Kings 18, when it comes to it, who are you going to call upon? And in the crises of life, but ultimately the crisis of death, you need the true and living God. Not many of us worship Baal. There are the gods we worship. Maybe our career, maybe our company, maybe money. I don't know what it is. I was very struck. Um, I enjoyed, uh, along with most of the UK population, uh, the Night Manager. Did you watch the Night Manager? Oh, lots of nods. Uh, you know the John Le Carre novel that was adapted uh, on BBC One on Sunday nights, the Night Manager. Um, and uh, uh, Hugh Laurie was the baddie in it, Dicky Roper. Not ah, uh, Dicky. Uh, Dicky Roper, and um, he was a deeply obnoxious character. You meet him, he's a snarling presence, uh, Hugh Laurie on screen. And you learn to hate him as the series goes on. Of course you do, because he's an arms dealer. And he deals arms, which get used, you know, they're very 
clear to push this, get used for the slaughter of innocents and, and children. And he's made money, huge amounts of money from his arms deal. And all he cares about is money. He's completely amoral and immoral uh, otherwise. So money has given him everything he wanted in life. Money has given him multiple uh, houses across the world. Uh, money's given him a vast estate on Mallorca where much of it is set. Uh, money's given him the opportunity to travel the world. Money has kept him safe because he's paid off officials. He's bought off bigwigs at MI6 so that he gets away with it. He's bought off police in Cairo. He's bought off uh, uh, police in Switzerland. He's, he's bought off officials. Money has given him security, protection. And then right at the end, I, you won't be too surprised, but right at the end of the series, of course, it comes... And he's caught, and he's still smiling, and he doesn't care, because money will save him. And he picks up the phone to call his guys at MI6. Can you tell your staff to leave me alone? And there is no reply. And the Egyptian police come for him, and they say, you do realize who, I know your captain. And there is no response, because actually they've all abandoned him. And there's just, of course, the whole series ends. He just realizes in a cell, in a van, all of a sudden the calmness, the arrogance all slides away and he just screams and kicks at the bars. No! As he realizes there is no God. His money is not going to save him. He can cry out all he wants and say, but my money has bought you. It is not. And it's a wonderful scene, obviously. Terrific actor. But all of a sudden, panic. I've lent on my money all my life. It's given me everything I needed, and now it's gone. Who do you rely on? Who do you call out to? Jesus Christ reveals a God who always listens to you, who'll pay for your mistakes, he'll die for your sins, he'll offer eternal life. You can trust him. He is the true and living God. So very briefly, last few minutes, draw near through Jesus. Draw near through Jesus. Elijah has given us a little model of that. Of course, with one sense, we can pray like Elijah. We can pray in faith to a God who answers prayer. Uh, and yet in chapter 18, where are you and I? We're the people. Uh, and Elijah is the prophet. And so when Elijah says, verse 30, to the people, come here to me, draw near to God through me. It is a picture to us of Jesus Christ who will say, you can draw near to the Father through me. And I will offer a sacrifice so that you can draw near, not of a bull, but of myself. Jesus says, draw near to God the Father through my sacrifice. Let me turn your heart back to God. So two brief comments on that. Look, anyone can draw near, even in this story, Ahab. I think that's the point of the last little incident uh, in verses 44 to the end. Uh, Elijah says, go and tell Ahab, uh, hitch up your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rainstorm came on. Ahab rode off in his chariots to Jezreel. It's another city about 17 miles away. Then verse 46, the power of the Lord came on Elijah, tucking his cloak into his belt. He ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. What's all that about? What's all that about? You've had this extraordinary account with this phenomenal miracle. And then, oh, by the way, you know, then Elijah just had a, yeah, just to show you. 
uh, you know, I'll have a little run. And you have a chariot classically drawn by four horses and just a one-man chariot as the king, uh, but I'll outrun you 17 miles because that's the sort of man I am. What is that? Now, clearly it's supernatural, we're told. The power of the Lord comes on Elijah, but that's extraordinary. Two hours, four minutes, I'm told, is the record for the London Marathon, if you wanted to have a go at that next year. But to outrun a team of horses pulling a chariot over 17 miles, that's quite some going. Maybe it's his diet, the locust diet. No, it's not that. We're told it's the power of God. Why? Elijah runs ahead of Ahab to Jezreel. And I think the point is, when Ahab arrives in Jezreel, there is Ahab. The prophet, the word of the Lord has gone ahead of him. And it is to say, now Ahab, what will you do? We'll see next time. Still Ahab rejects the word of the Lord and goes back to his wife and her false prophets. But even Ahab, it seems, could have drawn near. The point being, it's never too late to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And so, for you and for me, draw near. If you're not a believer, it's the only way to have any form of relationship with God. It's not what you offer up to him. It's just because God has offered a way to draw near to him through Jesus Christ. For those of us who are believers, when you pray... Remember who you pray to. It is not a reluctant God in heaven who begrudgingly gives you things. It is not that the Father is in heaven reluctant and says, well, I suppose I have to listen to you because of my son. He is the fountainhead of all love. He's the fountainhead of all goodness. He plans and orchestrates salvation from the beginning of the world. Just as here... God sends Elijah to be a prophet so the people can draw near. God the Father sends Christ the Son so that we can draw near. It's God's plan. He's not reluctant to save. He's not reluctant to listen. You know, In the best letter ever written to a barber is Martin Luther's famous letter. If you've ever read it, Martin, his barber asked him, Martin, how shall I pray? And he sends him a letter back. This is how you pray, Mr. Barber. But the great line from it, the memorable one, prayer is never overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. Oh, please, I'll offer you up. No, it's not that. That's pagan babbling, says Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, we have a God who we can always draw near to, always. We offer up nothing. He delights to answer prayers and bless. Not always immediately. Sometimes there's a delay. Not always as, always as we desire it to be. But he does always keep his promises. And always turn those into prayers and pray those back. It is not what we offer up. God is a God who answers prayers because he cares. Because we can trust his promises. So call upon him. Call upon a father who loves you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we know well that in our hearts, our temptation is always to think we have to offer you something if you're to answer our prayers. We have to give away something. We, ha- we have to make deals with you if you're to give us what we desire. Father, would we recognize that it is not what we offer up, no matter how frenetic, no matter how dedicated, it's not what we offer up that makes us acceptable to you. It is your sacrifice. We can draw near through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and know you as a father who loves us, who loves to answer our prayers. Would you would we pray to you in that way? Through your son we ask. Amen.